Why is this a fight that the president wants to have? Why does he want to have any of the fights he wants to have? Any of well, them. I don't know why I came here tonight. None of them make sense. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, amongst others, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. You can run, but you can't hide from the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining me today. And the always delightful Desi Doyen is here with us as well. Yes, I am. Being delightful. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) We'll see. see. Uh, Scientists say that we all get an addictive hit of dopamine or endorphins or something from checking our iPhones and, and Facebook pages and and email for for content for contacts and 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 likes from from others they say that it's actually addictive right yes uh, they do that, uh, checking your email checking your yes. Twitter it, it activates the reward center in the brain the yeah. reward center so uh, I believe them uh, because I too reach for my iPhone every morning on my bedside table like pretty much the first thing that I do as soon as I'm I, as soon as I realize that I'm awake um, for what's becoming clear here is that for Donald Trump, as the president of the United States, he, too, is addicted to the hit uh, that he gets. But for him, he gets, I think, his hit from causing chaos. Uh, if a day goes by without the nation and the media freaking out about something that he did or said, he can't stand it. So he must cause chaos Every day, he must cause this reaction, it seems to me. That's his drug, his his addiction at this point. If he's not freaking out the country and, and now, in fact, the world, I think he thinks that he's not actually doing his job. So as awful as this has been for the people of the United States and the world, I don't see any of this stopping or even slowing down anytime soon. Uh, for any reason at all. Freaking the world out seems to be his version 
of being president of the United States. That's what he feels his job is, it seems to me. I also think it's a strategy, a strategy that helps keep everybody destabilized so that no one can mount any one very strong effort to stop him. I think you give him too much credit. That he's actually, like, Uh, thinking about this this intentionality? This is a strategy. We'll distract from this or that. Maybe. I don't know. Um, But I I think that that's just his junk, man. He needs that. He needs the stuff. He needs everyone to be reacting to whatever it is he says. And whatever any of that has to do with making America great again uh, at this point is very far from clear, to put it nicely. In fact, he seems to be proving the exact opposite in the eyes of the world as well as the eyes of the people of America. And in in the case of what Trump continues to do uh, with his his threats to totally destroy North Korea, well, that threat could result in nuclear war of some type at this point, whether or not he's just doing it for his hit of endorphins or not. Uh, It could certainly uh, result in the deaths of tens of thousands of people in Asia including in North Korea. And many of those deaths could occur without the U.S. even firing a shot at this point, given the ever-increasing sanctions that Trump is insisting on against the isolated nation, or more accurately, against its people. It's not really against the military program. It's This is going to affect the people of North Korea. They will be the first to bear the brunt of Trump's actions. But will any of that actually lead to the denuclearization that Trump is insisting on from uh, from North Korea and, and threatening threatening the entire nation about and frankly threatening this nation, the U.S., along with it? We'll be joined by an expert on the region shortly to discuss that, even as the North Korea's uh, uh, foreign minister today issued a new threat against the U.S. Milita- militarism in response once again to Donald Trump's unprecedented speech threatening North Korea with total destruction last week at the U.N. General Assembly. So that's coming up. And um, so I, 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 I've been thinking, uh, Des, that the the weeks of late have been exhausting, have been bad. Oh, yeah. And then we got to the past weekend <laughs> and just the past weekend alone of news that could have been an entire month's worth of news, frankly, during a normal administration. So we are in triage mode here again on the broadcast, trying to focus on the stuff that matters most while the corporate media is otherwise obsessed with Trump's obnoxious comments about how NFL owners should fire players who Trump referred to as sons of bitches at an Alabama political rally on Friday. If, you know, if they refuse to honor the U.S. national anthem the way that Donald Trump insists that they do, apparently standing during the anthem versus taking a knee in respectful protest of the epidemic of racialized murder. And that's what it is. Murder by some American law enforcement officials. Uh, that is uh, that standing for the anthem is more of an American value to Donald Trump than the First Amendment free speech rights of our Constitution. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. Frankly, most of you know that uh, scores of players and NFL owners responded over the weekend by taking a knee or otherwise locking arms in solidarity against Trump's obnoxious comments. But I, I, I want to recognize Uh, One point here, the Pittsburgh Steelers, for their particular reaction over the weekend, instead of coming out at all for the national anthem and essentially forcing players to 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 choose sides, to to take a side one way or another, whether they wanted to, you know, kneel, whether they wanted to stand, the team stayed in the locker room. 
with the exception of one player who who came out. But other other than that, they all stayed in the locker room. And frankly, in do, in my opinion, in doing so, the team did not force their own players to divide amongst themselves publicly. They did not allow Donald Trump to publicly divide them into two sides in an, in an obnoxious and frankly phony debate, uh, the way Trump seems determined to do to the nation itself. He, that, that's his plan. He wants everyone to hate each other. He wants everyone to choose sides. Well, the Steelers didn't take the bait, and uh, frankly, neither should we. He may get off on that divisiveness, but we don't have to. Or at least we shouldn't play into his hands in doing so. He is not making America great again. He is making America choose sides again, as we did in the, in the Civil War. In an unnecessary, frankly, it's an unhelpful quest to feed his addiction to hate and self-loathing or whatever it is. Uh, we, you know, we, we didn't make his illness. We, we, we don't need to make his illness our own. Um, so I applaud that choice, uh, though I admit that none of this is easy. None of it is good for anybody, not even for Donald Trump. And with all of that said, uh, while that was going over the weekend, uh, there was another mass shooting at a church, this one in a diverse community in rural Tennessee, where eight were shot, one fatally during Sunday services. And so our president had dozens of tweets charging that NFL players were harming our country, but he had he had nothing to say about the actual American carnage in another American place of worship over the weekend. Uh, a mass gunman opened fire at a church near, near Nashville on Sunday, walking silently down the aisle as he shot unsuspecting congregants, according to AP. One person was killed. Seven others were, were wounded. An usher finally confronted the shooter, who apparently shot himself in the struggle with that usher before uh, before the shooter was arrested. No mo We don't have a motive at this time. Uh, nothing has been immediately determined in that regard. Church members told investigators that the suspect had attended services at the church a year or two ago. He pulled into the church's parking lot as services were ending. He fatally shot a woman who was walking to her vehicle in the church parking lot. Then he came into the rear of the church with two pistols, two pistols, and kept firing, hitting six people. Police said they later recovered another pistol and a rifle from the suspect's car. So he had four different weapons. Uh, among the wounded was uh, the church's pastor, uh, the, the small brick church describes itself on its website as a, quote, friendly Bible-based group of folks who love the Lord and are interested in spreading his word to those who are lost. Photos on their uh, Facebook page show a diverse congregation with people of various age, ages and, and ethnicities. And yet, oddly, while the president of the United States always has plenty to say about terrorism in other countries, he continues to completely ignore this epidemic of terrorism with firearms in the United States of America. I don't even know if he said anything about uh, the, the massacre in Plano, Texas, a week or two ago. Uh, during a football watching party at someone's house where 10 people were killed. He has absolutely nothing to say about that, but he can go on and on about whether someone stands or kneels during the, uh, during the national anthem. As president of the United States, 
Just amazing to me. So that happened over the weekend, ignored by the president. And then, oh, yeah, there's this last ditch effort to gut the Affordable Care Act that is ongoing to to gut Obamacare and the health care for millions of Americans. That continues in the U.S. Senate today as uh, the, 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 the folks that showed up to the one single Senate committee hearing on Graham Cassidy, that's the Republicans last chance legislation to gut Obamacare with just 50 votes instead of 60 votes, as they'll have to do uh, as of uh, the end of the month. Uh, They chanted shame, shame, shame as the senators tried to hold the hearing. Police were dragging people out in wheelchairs. People who were missing arms and legs were pulled out of the hearing room and arrested uh, as what was being described as pandemonium breaking out uh, in this hearing. Well, Very quickly here, the the Republican senators at the forefront of this latest effort to undo Obamacare are releasing a revised version of their bill today, sending more health care dollars to states of key Senate holdouts. The Republican senators who are uh, not saying whether they're going to vote for this thing or not, uh, as hardening resistance from several GOP senators left the proposal on the verge of collapse over the weekend. According to a summary that was obtained by The Washington Post, Senators Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina are proposing giving Alaska and Maine more funding than was initially offered in their legislation. Those states are represented by Senators uh, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins of Maine. They have expressed concerns about the bill but they have yet to say for certain how they would vote one way or another. They voted against the previous Republican attempts to uh, to repeal the Affordable Care Act. The Cassidy-Graham legislation would overhaul the a uh, the Affordable Care Act by lumping together the current law spending on insurance subsidies, premium subsidies and the expanded uh, the expanded Medicaid program and then giving it to states to in the form of block grants to pretty much do with as they please. Each state would have to come up in just two years time uh, with their own state run health care system, essentially from scratch. Uh, they got to do this by 2020. And then after 2026, Obamacare's expansion of Medicaid, that would end entirely, leaving more than 10 million Americans essentially to fend for themselves once again, as they had to do before uh, the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010. In the newly revised proposal, according to the Post, Alaska would get 3% more funding between 2020 and 2026 than they would under the existing current law. And Maine, the state of Maine, would get 43 percent more funding during that time period, according to the summary that was obtained by the Post. Of course, after 2026, well, good luck to both of those states as Medicaid uh, recipients uh, there and in the other 48 states and the District of Columbia are largely left. uh, No, they're left on their own Um, for themselves. Yep. The plan was uh, distributed among Republicans late on Sunday with party leaders uh, just one no vote away from defeat, at least if Kentucky's Rand Paul and Arizona's John McCain uh, keep their promise, I guess, to uh, to vote no on this proposal. That means just one more no vote from Republicans. And this thing is dead. 
Republican senators from across the political spectrum were distancing themselves from the uh, from the prior draft over the weekend, including folks like Senator Ted Cruz down in Texas. So we will see what comes of that breaking late today. Uh, there was a new analysis of the Graham-Cassidy bill by S&P. Um, they find that it will cost more than half of 580,000 jobs by what? 2027. Oh, my God. Uh, it, it will ensure low economic growth to the tune of $240 billion less economic activity by 2027. There will be fewer insured and we'll have the re- return of healthcare insurers who are imposing uh, high prices for uh, pre-existing conditions and so forth. So that that's what the Republicans in Congress are desperate to do. While everything else is going on, including everything else going on in Puerto Rico. Imagine if much of Dallas, uh, Dallas, Houston and San Antonio, Texas, does your your old home state. Oh, yeah. Imagine if the, pretty much the entirety of Dallas, the entirety of Houston and the entirety of, of San Antonio, San Antonio was facing major flooding, facing the major collapse of a of, of, of a major dam. And in all three of those huge cities, the power and the Internet were completely out for for the three and a half million Americans who live there in all of those Texas cities for more than a week. Imagine if you I mean, you've got family there in all of those oh, uh, yeah. cities. This is, these, these, and these are major economic engines yeah. of their states and of the nation. If that was knocked out, power and Internet from Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio for a week with officials there saying that it could be months before power was restored to Dallas, Houston, or San Antonio. You think the president of the United States would be picking fights with pro football players all weekend? Well, that's what's happening now. For three and a half million U.S. citizens in Puerto Rico, where the power is still out across the entire island, it's a a, a humanitarian crisis that is quickly escalating. And without the president saying much of anything about it and Congress uh, promising, though, that maybe they will pass legislation for relief there, relief aid in two or three weeks from now. Yep. Two or three weeks from now. The, Mid-October the, at the earliest. It's incredible. Would, would they be doing that if it was Dallas, Houston and San Antonio all completely knocked out and, and suffering without power or Internet or and, and floods across much of those cities? The top Democrat in the U.S. House today, Nancy Pelosi, called on Trump to deploy the military to help with the humanitarian crisis in Puerto Rico. That sounds like a good idea, frankly. Uh, I've been saying this now for weeks throughout all of these hurricanes. Let's start deploying our military to save lives instead of take them. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, not the president of the United States. Cuomo was in Puerto Rico today offering aid and assistance. He called out the president and Congress for failing to do the same amidst this really extraordinary crisis for millions of American citizens in the U.S. territory. Actually, uh, Cuomo was in Puerto Rico on Friday. He made this announcement in New York on Sunday. To our, our colleagues in our federal government, I humbly suggest that at this time, instead of arguing with football players, instead, instead of Instead of obsessing about how to take health care from the poor in this country, 
why don't we why don't we put the politics aside and focus on helping Americans in desperate need? And those are the people of Puerto Rico. And I don't care. I don't care if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, you're liberal, conservative, you're short, you're tall, you're from the East Coast, you're from the West Coast. Americans go first. We can save lives if we act and we should. Incredible that uh, the governor of New York has to come out with a statement like that. You can uh, you can donate to the efforts in uh, in Puerto Rico by stopping by unitedforpuertorico.com. I believe that was set up by the wife of the governor of Puerto Rico. And admit, uh, amidst all of that, the president continues to threaten war against nuclear armed North Korea even as he increases sanctions that will harm millions of North Korean citizens who have nothing to do with leader Kim Jong-un's quest for weapons that can strike the continental U.S. That story is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. We rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Rocket man. Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So amidst all of this other stuff going on, amidst all of the amidst the need to to feed Trump's addiction to divide the nation, uh, amidst the the fight to take health care from millions and the humanitarian crisis for three and a half million American citizens in Puerto Rico, Donald Trump continues his dangerous saber-rattling and threats against North Korea and its leader Kim Jong-un following his uh, Trump's unprecedented threat for a U.S. president from the dais of the United Nations General Assembly last week to, quote, totally destroy North Korea. Today, North Korea's foreign minister said the isolated nation considers Trump's comments last week uh, and no doubt uh, his earlier ones threatening fire and fury against the sovereign nation to be a, quote, declaration of war. North Korea's foreign minister on Monday asserted that the pariah state has the right to defend itself by shooting down U.S. planes, even if they are not in the country's airspace, according to Washington Post today. Ri Yong-ho, speaking to reporters at a hotel across from the United Nations, said President Trump's comments at the General Assembly last week and again Saturday on Twitter constituted a declaration of war. Re said the question of who won't be around much longer will be answered then. That was in response to Trump's weekend tweet warning that if Re quote, echoes thoughts of little rocket man the personal epithet that uh, Trump now uses to describe Kim, they won't be around much longer, Trump tweeted. 
North Korea has made similarly bellicose threats in the past against South Korea, but coming at a time when tensions are already high because of the war of words between the U.S. and North Korean leaders, Ri's remarks further stoked fears that a simple miscalculation could end in military confrontation, says the Post. U.S. bomber flights conducted over the weekend in a show of force by the U.S. off the Korean peninsula's east coast occurred in international airspace, where the Pentagon asserts the U.S. has the right to fly. The State Department rejected Rhee's characterization that the two countries are in a state of open war. The United States has not declared war on North Korea, said a spokesperson for the, department's, uh, the State Department's East Asia Bureau. We continue to seek a peaceful denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, she said. Kim, for his part, made a rare TV appearance last week in which he called Trump a mentally deranged U.S. dotard. Trump responded with mockery, calling Kim little rocket man. Rhee, who said North Korea was prepared to test a hydrogen bomb over the Pacific Ocean, told the U.N. on Saturday that Trump's disrespect toward Kim made it inevitable that rockets would, quote, visit the U.S. mainland. During the war of words in recent months, uh, since Trump, Trump's uh, threat of fire and fury against North Korea, uh, they have accelerated their missile tests. And on September 3, it detonated a nuclear device it claimed was a hydrogen bomb that could be placed on a missile capable of reaching the U.S. mainland. But this is already much more than a war of words, if it were only just a war of words. The U.S. has rallied the U.N. Security Council now on several occasions in recent months to increase economic sanctions against North Korea. And late last week, while still in New York for the General Assembly, Trump signed an executive order unilaterally declaring even more economic sanctions against North Korea's ability to import oil and use the world banking system in hopes of forcing North Korea to denuclearize. Amidst all of that, South Korea recently announced a surprise decision to send an $8 million aid package to North Korea, the move which runs count, uh, uh, contrary to the U.S. And, and Japan's calls for an increase in e economic sanctions and diplomatic pressure, marks a resumption in South Korean aid after a break of almost two years. So the nation most immediately threatened by North Korea is actually trying to help the people of North Korea. Imagine that. In a statement last Wednesday, the South's unification minister uh, said that the uh, decision to resume aid with North Korea was in line with, quote, the government's stance that it separates the provision of humanitarian aid from politics. And it continues to provide aid to improve the humanitarian situation of North Korean residents and the quality of their lives. The U.S., however, seems to be making no such distinction. So is Trump's policy doing little more than backing the North, uh, the North into a very volatile corner? Experts on the region have said time and again that North Korea is seeking a peace treaty to end official hostilities after the 1953 Korean War. Yes, there was never a treaty after that war, only an armistice agreement to temporarily suspend hostilities. 
The country, experts say, might be willing to curb their offensive military program in exchange for such a treaty, including a promise from the U.S. that we will not attack the North unless they first attack us or one of our allies. In the meantime, as Trump tries to tighten the noose, both in words and sanctions, critics of the U.S. Trump policy say that it is not North Korea leader Kim Jong-un or his weapons program that will suffer in the bargain in the wake of those words, those sanctions, those military threats, but rather the people of North Korea themselves. One such critic is Gregory Elich. He is a frequent contributor to Counterpunch, where he offered an article last week headlined Trump's War on the North Korean People. Gregory serves on the board of directors of the Jasanovic Research Institute and the advisory board of the Korea Policy Institute. He's a member of the Solidarity Committee for Democracy and Peace in Korea and is one of the co-authors of Killing Democracy, CIA and Pentagon Operations in the Post-Soviet Period. Gregory Elich, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, I, I want to get into the specifics of your, your counterpunch piece, because I think you make a lot of important points that I, I just don't hear, frankly, in the corporate media. Uh, concerning the effect of these sanctions and what uh, that effect will be on the people of North Korea, if not their military program. But first, I want to just sort of get your general reaction to Trump's rocket man speech at the U.N. last week, threatening to totally destroy North Korea and, and the effectiveness of that sort of rhetoric by a U.S. president at the U.N. or on Twitter or anywhere else. Well, of course, it has the effect of closing off any possibility of negotiations. Uh, not necessarily that it makes any difference because uh, Trump's already come out and said that talk is not the answer. But uh, it's, it's certainly backing North Korea into a corner, as you say. But I'd also like to point out that mm -hmm. uh, the how the North Koreans perceive these flights of the B-1 bombers yeah. uh, just outside of its border. Uh, so if you look back to the 1950-53 Korean War, at that time, U.S. bombers obliterated every single town and city in, in North Korea. There wasn't a single building left standing. So it was absolutely devastating impact. And North Koreans, it's still within living memory, the Korean War, for many people in North Korea. Mm -hmm. And so the B-1 bomber it has it's the highest firepower of any U.S. plane. It's got four times the payload of the B-52. So this is sending a message to North Korea that the U.S. would consider repeating the experience of carpet bombing every city. So obviously the North Koreans are going to react emotionally to such a to such a an action. And that was that was over the weekend, I guess, those B1 bombers, but they have been uh but the the US has been having joint military exercises uh off the off the Korean peninsula and in Japan and South Korea and so forth for some time and I can only imagine, you know, when people say, well, what's wrong with North Korea? Why are they doing this? I can only imagine, you know, what would happen if a major military power, let's say China and Mexico, were holding uh, these sorts of military exercises off the U.S. coast or in Mexico? I, I, you know, I, I would think U.S. would certainly see that as a threat, uh, e even if these uh, China or whoever it was insisted that it was not a threat or were just holding exercises. Um, that said, uh, as noted, uh, Trump announced uh, new sanctions late last week against North Korea by executive order in that case. And I don't know what we know yet as far as the full details of that order and if China is actually on board with it, as as Trump had originally claimed. 
but a week or two ago, the U.S. was successful in getting the U.N., including North Korean allies, China and Russia, to agree on a resolution for another series of sanctions. And that was on top of more sanctions that were issued in August, prohibiting North Korea from exporting coal, iron, iron ore, lead, lead ore and seafood, uh, all key commodities in the nation's international trade. Uh, and and while I uh, while sanctions you know often take a while to actually have an effect, you write at Counterpunch Gregory that uh, September's resolutions further constrains North Korea's ability to engage in regular international trade by barring the export of textiles, and that uh, the North's estimated 100 to 2,000 textile workers will feel the impact of that immediately. How so? How will they feel that? Uh, impact immediately in North Korea. Okay, well, the majority of textile workers are engaged in the export market. So mm-hmm. when there's no longer an export market, then obviously they're going to be uh, thrown out of work. So that's going to directly affect their livelihoods. And if you take the two sanctions, August and September sanctions put together, they eliminate 90% of North Korea's exports. So if North Korea is basically unable to earn any foreign exchange, then that pretty much eliminates its ability to conduct any international trade whatsoever. So, for instance, the, uh, this is another way of, say, we- weaponizing food, because uh, North Korea has little arable land. Mm-hmm. And so it's always, no matter, even the best of years, it's going to have to import a certain amount of food. But if it doesn't have the foreign currency to purchase food on the international market, then, it can't, then it, there's not going to be enough food to feed the people. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. You, you, yeah, you describe the weaponization of food in your article. Is, is that what we are now doing? Are we keeping uh, uh, food imports from coming into the north? Well, it's not a, an ex- this is a clever way of, uh, of doing it. It's not an explicit ban on food imports, mm-hmm. but it, it's a, uh, if you take Trump's executive order, which basically bans any foreign bank from handling financial institutions, uh, you know, financial uh, transactions mm-hmm. with North Korea. Otherwise, that bank is, is blacklisted from the international financial system. Then nobody's going to be able to handle financial uh, uh, transactions with North Korea. So North Korea can't purchase the food. Mm. It's not banned from importing food. It just won't be able to purchase it. Mm. So the only way it can conduct any international trade at all is with bags of cash. Well, maybe for small-scale purchases that's viable, but to import oil, for instance, or a, a large amount of food, that's impossible. Mm. Is that, to your understanding, is that what the aid uh, th- that the uh, South Korean president has now promised to send to, to the North, is that what that is meant to counter? Is, is that mostly uh, food and so forth that they wouldn't otherwise be able to buy? I believe that's basic, basically uh, food, as you say, and I think that was actually triggered by the uh, drought that hit North Korea during the April to June uh, planting season. So I've seen one estimate that they're looking at maybe a 30% reduction in in the normal harvest, which is actually going on right now. And so I think that's meant to kind of fill the gap in that regard. Now, it'll be interesting to see what the United States does about it, because I I wouldn't be surprised if the United States, through back channels, tries to block South Korea from doing it. It tries to block them from the humanitarian aid? That's what I'm anticipating, but I'm just, this is just speculation on my part. You write that these uh, that these sanctions will also impact uh, the livelihoods, uh, not just of 
Well, as you described, 100 to 200,000 textile workers immediately, but also the uh, that they will impact the livelihoods of uh, North Koreans o- uh, overseas workers. How many are, are there a lot of North Koreans working overseas and and how will this uh, also affect uh, their livelihoods as as you see it? Okay, so there's an estimated 90,000 overseas North Korean workers. Mm engaged in a variety of trades uh, throughout uh, all the continents, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, they're disallowed from being able to uh, extend their uh, contracts once the contracts ex- expire. Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, they're going to have to come home to North Korea. So they have to uproot themselves. They'll lose their home wherever in whatever country they're living in. And they have to try and line up a job when they get to North Korea and line up a place to live. So it's going to be there'll be a definite disruption of their lives. And you add on top of that, now Trump has uh, issued this new travel ban. Presumably, that would mean, and including North Korea, uh, in that travel ban, barring refugees. Presuming that would mean, if any of those ninety thousand people, those ninety thousand North Koreans working abroad, if they wanted to, uh, even if they wanted to get out of the North, they wanted to come to the U.S. Presumably, they would be blocked from taking a, a political refuge at this point here in the U.S. I guess under this new travel ban is—is is that how you understand it, or or do we not yet know enough about that uh, that that new travel ban by the Trump administration? No, you have that exactly right. That's ex- that's precisely what it would do. They would not be allowed to come here. Now, in theory, all of this is meant to somehow lead to denuclearization of North Korea. How would all of these measures that we're talking about here, Gregory Illich, uh, that seem to be just ultimately just punitive against the North Korean people themselves, how would that lead to denuclearization, uh, at least by the U.S. theory under which these sanctions are being implemented? How how would this program uh, work if it did work as Trump would like it to? Uh, well, let's start by taking it as the Trump administration imagines it. And they, mm-hmm. they imagine that if you engage in negotiations, that there's actually give and take. So you'd have to give up something in return for the North Koreans to denuclearize. Well, the Trump administration is not willing to do that. What they think they're going to do is basically uh, bludgeon North Korea into economic submission and force a collapse, so there's no choice for them but to denuclearize without getting anything in return. But I think it's a serious misjudgment of the North Korean character. The North Koreans have always responded diplomatically when they're approached diplomatically, but when they're threatened, the more they're threatened, the more they respond in kind, but they push back. So if you look at Kim Jong-un's speech a few days ago, Mm -hmm. he was saying the recent rhetoric and the actions the U.S. are taking has, if anything, convinced them all the more of the uh, correctness approach mm-hmm. of developing the nuclear program. So they're going to accelerate that effort. And of course they look back to the examples of uh, Yugoslavia and Libya and Iraq, uh, countries that depo- relied on uh, conventional arms that were basically helpless in the face of U.S. bombing or invasions. And Libya, for that matter, had a nuclear weapons program and gave it up in agreement with the United States, only to be bombed a few years later. So it was a sort of an object lesson for the North Koreans that they point out. It does kind of send the message that, uh, you know, if you have nuclear weapons, you're uh, you're a hell of a lot safer in this world uh, against threats like those from the U.S. Um, You also write in your piece that uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin 
uh, delivered threats as well, warning that if China, warning China that if its actions against North Korea failed to live up to U.S. expectations, that the U.S. would put additional sanctions onto China and prevent them from accessing the U.S. and international dollar system as well. Uh, that, I guess, would, would also keep China from participating in the, the world markets at all. Uh, am I understanding that correctly? Was that an actual threat that was issued by Mnuchin? Uh, yes, it was. And it's quite an extreme threat because it's hard to imagine how the United States could do that uh, without creating international financial havoc because uh, mm-hmm. China is obviously an important player in the international market and is an important part in the economy of the United States for that matter. So. I think they're looking more in reality at hitting Chinese banks one by one and picking them off. Uh, so actually, they, before the August vote, they won uh, the Chinese agreement to mm-hmm. vote for sanctions by threatening that they'd hit 10 specific businesses. And the same thing happened again in the September vote. They had specific banks that they were threatening the Chinese to hit. Uh, and... <laughs> Does this work? Is there a history of of this actually working? That uh, you know, bringing these kind of sanctions against a a, a nation, against the banking system, uh, that somehow this uh, strong arms these nations into complying with the wishes of the U.S. Is there history of that tactic actually? I know we've done it over the years, but has it ever actually worked? Uh, it's. It's said that it's worked uh, with Iran, but uh, I, and then I have to confess that's not a, mm-hmm. a case that I follow very closely, so I can't really comment on it. Mm-hmm. But I, I've, my impression from the little bit that I've been reading is that the United States would have gone a lot farther on that if they had approached Iran in a more diplomatic matter than through threats. You argue that by cutting off North Korea entirely and uh, essentially punishing any nation that doesn't do so uh, as well, is, quote, in essence, Washington running an international protection racket. Give give us what we demand or we will hurt you. You say this is gangsterism as foreign policy. That's a serious charge, Gregory Illich. Yeah, well, of course, that's how a gangster would operate. They would visit a business, for instance, and they'd say, okay, you have to give us such and such or we will hurt you. Mm-hmm. Well, the United States is sending officials all across the globe visiting countries and saying, you have to cut off North Korea, relations with North Korea, mm-hmm. or we're going to do this economic measure against you. And they're visiting banks and doing the same thing. So if you look at the executive order, for instance, the executive order says that it authorizes the Treasury Department to sanction any foreign financial institutions that handle transactions involving North Korea. They would be blocked from the global financial system and not allowed to use the U.S. dollars which is essential for conducting international trade. They're talking about uh, blocking ships that dock at North Korean ports for visiting the U.S. for half a year. Uh, so already a lot of countries have caved in. A number of countries have, have thrown out North mm-hmm. Korean uh, diplomats. Countries have uh, severed relations. For instance, the Philippines announced that they, cut, they would no longer conduct, conduct any trade relations whatsoever with North Korea. They've forced Namibia to cancel all existing contracts in North Korea. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to look at it. You know, it's, so these countries aren't given a free choice in who they can engage trade with because they're going to be hurt. 
Well, that said, because, yeah, you, you uh, cite a bunch of them, India, Mexico, Peru, the Philippines, Kuwait, Egypt, Uganda. They have all curtailed trade uh, with North Korea. So I guess the question is, yeah, it, maybe it is gangsterism as foreign policy, but is it working? I mean, they've gone. Those countries have gone and, you know, in fact, gone along with it. Um, so it, does that suggest the policy is working at least to get those countries to go along, if not to get uh, North Korea to to bend to the will of the U.S.? It depends on what what one means by working. If mm-hmm. the goal is to denuclearize North Korea, then, of course, it will have no effect whatsoever except to encourage North Korea to accelerate its efforts. But if the goal is to... Uh, impose economic hardship on the population in North Korea, then it it is quite likely that it will work in the long run. And the theory of that being that if you impose economic hardship on the people of North Korea, they will then rise up against against Kim Jong-un and and that regime and and somehow overthrow? I mean, is that the the same old story that we have tried over and over again in other countries like Iraq and so forth and Iran that actually did not result in the overthrow of the regime? Yeah, it's exactly the theory. And as you mentioned, it's never worked. If anything, it causes the population to rally around its government when it's being targeted like that. Mm. So it'll have the opposite effect. I, I uh, one of our uh, Emil Sorensen, one of our fa- one of our favorite listeners and tweeters from Denmark. I always incorrectly say he's from Holland, but he's from Denmark. Uh, I I know that uh, he says I know that this is heretical, but I'm starting to take North Korea's side when Trump is involved. He's Bush without the legitimacy. He says I'd prefer that North Korea don't build nukes, but it's pretty obvious that they don't have any other option, and we didn't give them one unless the U.S. can be relied on to keep its agreement and refrain from attacking smaller countries. I can't even blame the North anymore, he says. We talked about this uh, a bit on uh, several recent shows, Gregory, but uh, at this point, uh, your thoughts on the notion that Trump has succeeded here only in demonstrating to the world why North Korea is actually right to build nuclear weapons. It seems to be the only deterrent that is left for a nation at this point. Yeah, and actually Mr. Sorensen put it very well, so uh, that's my impression also, and I think one of the reasons uh, motivating the Trump administration to take a such harsh reaction against North Korea is the fear of this being an example that other nations who might be targeted in the future would follow mm-hmm. if they see that the only way to deter attack is, is to develop a nuclear weapons program. And I don't think the Trump administration likes the idea of, of countries being able to deter attack. And I think uh, the, the, the message, the same the message that he's sending at the same time, talking about breaking off, uh, pulling out of the agreement with Iran, pulling out of the, uh, the Paris agreement, also kind of sends the message, it seems to me, that, hey, the U.S. does not keep its word. So why would they even want to make an agreement with us that uh, this particular president, anyway, might pull out, uh, pull out of? Uh, Gregory Ilich, I've got uh, two more quick questions I want to ask you. I'm short on time, but uh, I, too, fear the effect that all of this will have on the North Korean people themselves. That said, what should the U.S. be doing uh, in order to either demilitarize or denuclearize North Korea or at least to bring them to the table? What uh, what process would you prefer to see uh, uh, going forward? 
Well, the process that I would prefer to see is maybe not the process that the U.S. should take, because if you look at the interests in the Trump administration, mm -hmm. they're already doing what they want to do because their interests are not the same as the interests of the American people. But if you look at what are the interests of the American people, and from that standpoint, what should the Trump administration be doing, it's quite simple. Talk. The previous negotiated settlements with North Korea were effective until the Bush administration undermined each agreement, but as until they did so, those agreements were in effect. And the North Koreans have approached the Obama administration a number of times and asked for negotiations. In May, they approached the Trump administration, offered to cease missile testing and cease nuclear testing if the U.S. would drop its hostile policy and drop its U.S. sanctions. And the Trump administration told them no. But if you look at the North Korean media, over and over and over again, they say, we're not willing to give up nuclear weapons unless the U.S. drops its hostile policy. But the problem in there is exactly what you mentioned a little while ago, is, is the U.S. a reliable partner? As you say, they're backtracking on the Iran deal, and of course they bombed Libya after the Libyans mm -hmm. cooperated on that. I can't imagine a scenario, uh, what kind of guarantee could the U.S. possibly give the North Koreans that would be believable? So that's kind of like a, a big problem at the center of this whole issue. At this point, and I want to underscore a point you made, it was actually a part of my last question here, was that the North Korean uh, government did try to get uh, the Obama administration. To be fair, uh, they did come to the Obama administration, as you explained in your article, uh, to try to talk, but Obama would not return to the table either, as I understand it. Um, so Obama wouldn't talk, uh, Trump wouldn't talk, won't talk, can't be trusted. How does this actually end, Gregory? I wish I knew. I don't see any good way out because the Trump administration rules out. They say they've tried everything, but they haven't. The one thing they haven't tried is the one thing that would work, and that's sincere talk. Um, so... Uh, one thing I should point out that worries me a lot is uh, CNN reported that a U.S. military official said the Trump administration is talking about the possibility of shooting down North Korean test missile flights, right. and that would be an act of war. So I, I can't imagine North Koreans would take that lying down, and so that kind of thing worries me a lot. Yeah, it worries me a lot as well. But, you know, uh, some people were taking a knee during the national anthem over the weekend in the NFL. So that seems to be what our president has on his mind. Gregory <laughs> Elich, I will uh, point folks towards your piece at Counterpunch. I think it's very informative. I wish we saw uh, more thoughts like it in the uh, in the corporate media. The headline, Trump's War on the North Korean People. Uh, that is at uh, counterpunch.org, I believe is the, uh, the URL there. Uh, you can also check out Gregory's work at gregoryelich.org and on the Twitters at Gregory Elich. That's E-L-I-C-H. Gregory, really appreciate you joining us uh, to talk about this today, and I suspect we'll be calling you again in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with, uh, I think we'll have time for a couple mo more stories, including... What appears to be some very good news, at least for Democrats right now, breaking from uh, from the AP. So stand by. That story and more is next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast.
Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Don't you know, things have changed, things are going away, if you hold on for one more day. <laughs> well, uh, Democrats will have to hold on for more than one day, but not too many more uh, through the end of this week if they want to block the Republicans' attempt to gut Obamacare uh, with just 50 votes by the end of the week when that uh, Senate rule ends. Here's the good news. Welcome back to the Bradcast, by the way. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Looks like the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office is now out with their partial and very rushed analysis of the Republicans' uh, last gasp measure to repeal and replace Obamacare before the end of the week when they can't do it anymore with a bare minimum 50 votes. And it looks like this is bad news for Senate Republicans. And Desi Doyen, you were right uh, during the break. You said this is not just good news for Democrats. No, this is good news for everybody. Potentially, yes. Uh, AP says uh, the Congressional, Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, says that the new Republican bill repealing Obama health law would reduce insurance coverage for millions. Now, that doesn't sound like good news, except that uh, that report from the CBO has led apparently to Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine saying that she is now opposed to the latest GOP health care bill. And that undermines the prospects for passage, says AP. Because now you've got Susan Collins, John McCain, Rand Paul all on record saying, no, they are against this uh, this health care repeal. Whether Republicans can still buy some of them off at this point remains to be seen. So I would not yet be certain that this thing is over. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because remember, like any good zombie, this thing isn't dead until it's really, truly, completely dead. And that won't be until October 1st, the dawn of October 1st. Oh, well done. Thank you. I get what you did there. Uh, So there you go. There's that. And uh, very quickly, before we get out here... Just a bit more on this, uh, you know, we talked about Donald Trump sort of making America choose sides uh, to basically feed his chaos addiction. Well, uh, someone who sort of fell for that this uh, this weekend was Joe Scarborough of MSNBC. He tweeted, quote, this may be unpopular, but it is a political reality. Every NFL player refusing to stand for the national anthem helps Trump politically. 
Okay, I guess uh, one could try to make that point, as Scarborough did. Another Twitter user, a guy by the name of Fanon's Dream, juxtaposed that bit of white splaining from Joe Scarborough uh, from his tweet with a screenshot of a Gallup poll from 1963 at the civil rights, the height of the civil rights movement, really, before the, just before the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Gallup asked uh, a thousand or so, uh, 1,600 or so respondents, do you think mass demonstrations by Negroes are more likely to help or more likely to hurt the Negroes' cause for racial equality? At the time, in 1963, 60% of Americans who were asked that question said it would hurt. They need to stop those uh, those mass protests. That's not going to help their cause. Disruptive. That's not going to help your cause at all. Yep. Just 27% at the time said it would help. So uh, that kind of uh, reminds you of Joe Scarborough's concern trolling there that uh, may be unpopular. But, you know, these these players really shouldn't take a knee. It only helps Donald Trump. Yeah, the historical parallels are very uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, they, they are. And I mean, we have seen this all throughout the civil rights uh, era, civil rights protesters who, you know, people who claim, well, look, I'm in favor of their cause, but. But not their tactics. Their tactics are hurting. Uh, and we see that echoed again by Joe Scarborough today. Yeah. And, and one funny thing that came up today, um, our friend, the comedian Liz Winstead, uh, she tweeted out a quote. Co-creator of The Daily Show. Yes, exactly. So she tweeted out a quote from Molly Ivins, the great Texas columnist. Uh, the Molly, late great Molly Ivins. Yes. Yeah, she said, uh, quote, I prefer someone who burns the flag and then wraps themselves up in the Constitution over someone who burns the Constitution and then wraps themselves up in the flag. <laughs> well done. Well said. Uh, thank you very much, Molly Ivins. Uh, I can't end the show with anything better than that. Yeah. So thank you. And thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to my guest today, Gregory Elich of CounterPunch.org, and especially to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is, as ever, greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. My thanks, as ever, to all of you who uh, stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves, doing whatever the hell it is we try to do every day right here. All right, we will be back with you again tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>